It must have been a dozen years ago that we got the historical committee together and started pawing through boxes and boxes and boxes of documents and pictures and certificates and other things. It was an incredibly fun time, led by uh, our historian extraordinaire, uh, Valerie Marvin. And there were a lot of things that were strange in the box. We had to have explained to us there were some things that were moving and amazing, and there were a few things that in light of kind of historical changes or in retrospect were kind of funny. And one of those things, I think I've mentioned it before, was to us the kind of slogan that the church had adopted for a time many, many years ago, which was to serve God, dot, 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 more adequately. The reason that it found, we found it funny was not because it's a bad slogan, but because it hadn't really aged all that well. Here's the thing. Nowadays, church slogans or taglines or mission statements, they're all about over-the-top extreme things, right? Worship that'll melt your face off. Life change. You know, these, these things, you know, you're burning with fire of faith. Whereas this was kind of setting the bar seemingly attainable. We want to serve God more adequately. I think there's a shift in culture here. I remember it was quite some time ago, uh, probably 20 years ago almost, that I first had a problem with the notion of adequateness. Right? Adequate means satisfactory. This is, this is good. It meets the requirement. But the first time I was sat down by my boss and said, here's your performance review, and I looked through, and it was one through five, and I was like, why are there three or four threes in here? I started to, to freak out a little bit. And I scheduled a meeting with my boss and his boss. And I said, guys, what am I doing wrong? Why, why did I get such a bad review? And I said, bad review? You had a great review. I said, look at all these threes. And my boss said, three says meets expectations. You also had a lot of fours, exceeds expectations, and fives would say that you're doing a wonderful job. But I was focused on the threes because in our culture now, everything's either the best or the worst. And for that reason, I kind of like that slogan, to serve God more adequately. The word adequate has changed meaning too, and words do that. It's, it's gone from being, yes, this passes the test, to being, this is barely good enough. It's good enough, I guess. I know because you're Baptist, none of you watched The Office, but if you did, you'd remember when it was going to be Dwight Schrute's performance review, when he was building his whole self-worth on it, but his boss was busy, and when he walked into the office, he said, your performance has been adequate, you may leave. And it was meant to be the ultimate kind of brush-off, the ultimate faint praise, tongue-in-cheek kind of two-sided compliment that was really no compliment at all. But here's the thing. Whatever changes in the culture, whatever changes in language, the fact of the matter is that as Christians, we will never actually meet the qualification, perfectly meet the expectations and requirements of a believer. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This side of glory, in this lifetime, you will never perfectly, adequately meet God's holy and perfect standard. The best we can hope for is to serve Him day by day a little more adequately. And a little more adequately than that. And a little more adequately than that. But what I don't think I realized when we first snickered coming across those documents was that the 
to serve God more adequately slogan comes right out of the Bible. Some, some translations say more perfectly, some say more completely, but in the King James and a couple of others, including the one you heard Mimi read, we're told that Priscilla and Achilla sat Apollos down and taught him the way of the Lord more adequately. And that was a wonderful thing to happen for the church. And I think there is something to be learned in that. First of all, well, you know what? Let's back up. We haven't even gotten to Apollos yet. Get out your map if you've got it. If you don't, don't worry. It's the last week. Oh, never mind. We printed up new ones just in time to not need them anymore. Keep this, though. Keep it in your Bible if you don't have good maps in your Bible because it's easy to get lost in all the traveling that Paul does. And if you're like me at all, it's helpful to have uh, a visual aid in front of you. So if you look at the green line, that is Paul's second missionary journey. You'll remember he wanted to go into Asia or Bithynia, but he was not permitted by the Holy Spirit. So after visiting a couple of these churches that he had founded in the first missionary journey, in Lystra, Iconium, etc., he winds up going straight through to Troas, which is a port city, and from there he goes up and he enters into Europe. He goes into Neapolis, Philippi, he starts making disciples. He goes into Greece. We, we saw him in Thessalonica and Berea, and then in Athens in Acts 17, and then last week he spent a year and a half in Corinth. That's right, last week he spent a year and a half in Corinth, and the Bible kind of goes over it that quickly. And now when you look, he's on his way back. He is more or less done with this second missionary journey. He has set his sights back for Antioch in Syria, which is his sending church, his home base. And he just makes a couple of quick stops on the way. Now, Paul, we're told, one of those stops shaves his head because he had taken a vow, probably a Nazarite vow. You read about that in Numbers chapter 6. It meant he couldn't drink any wine or strong drink or even eat any grapes or raisins. Raisins are off the table. He could not comb his, or comb his hair. He couldn't comb his, what? He could, he could comb his hair. He could not cut his hair. He could not let any razor touch his hair. He had to let it grow out. He couldn't touch any dead body or be defiled in any way, that sort of thing. And you would cut your hair off to signify the end of the vow. If you read Numbers chapter 6, it's all laid out in verses 1 through 21. When they get to Chentria, that's when his, his time of, of this vow has come to a close, and he cuts it all off. Now, what we know about Paul is that he was bald on top. We know that from tradition. Had a unibrow, and uh, probably when his hair was growing out long all around the outside, his friends were all like, what are you doing? Is this a midlife crisis or what? And so when he cut it off, they were on board and happy for him. That's not the Lord, but I. But the point is that this sort of a vow was generally a vow of thanksgiving, of gratitude to God. It was taken not as a deal with God. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. But rather, when one had survived some mortal danger or some horrible ordeal, you would say, God, by way of thanks, I am going to take this Nazarite vow for 30 days was the minimum, but it could be for a longer of a period of time. And then you would go about your day every day as you said, I want some wine. Oh, no wine. Oh, yeah, my hair is lo You would be reminded of what God had done for you and how these little token acts of thanksgiving 
We're reminders and, and really kind of worship and praise in the form of a vow. We don't know which of Paul's many near misses and trials and tribulations may have prompted him to enter into this vow of gratitude, but we do know that it came to a close in Chantria. Probably something then that happened in Corinth. We also see here that while Paul had seemingly broken away from reaching out to the Jews in the synagogue uh, when he was in, uh, his, what is he, he was, I think it was in Corinth, uh, that he, he hasn't broken with his Jewishness, his Judaism. He won't impose the law on Gentiles, but he does follow it himself. And he follows it even in areas that are not required, but optional like this vow. So follow that green line, they leave Corinth, and the next stop, of course, is Ephesus. And it seems to me, and it seems to many who have commented and preached on such things, that the stop in Ephesus was just an ordinary stop that the ship was going to make. That'd be a normal thing to do. Ephesus was a major city, it was a capital in the area. You would stop there, unload some cargo, pick up some cargo, unload some people, pick up some people. And while they were there, Paul said, hey, I wanted to come here on the way going this way, and I wasn't permitted to, so now on the way back home, I may as well do a little ministry. So he takes a little day trip or a couple of days. He goes in. Now we'll talk more about Ephesus itself next week. All you need to know for now is that it has a synagogue where the people are more open to hearing about Jesus than they have been in some of the other cities that Paul has visited. In fact, they're so open to hearing about Jesus that they ask him to stay. If you look at verses 20 and 21, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now in the King James, there's the additional statement, I must keep this feast in Jerusalem indicating that the reason he needed to keep on moving was because he wanted to get to Jerusalem in time for a particular feast. We don't know if that was part of the original text. It seems like maybe it had been added. But we know that whatever the reason, he did want to get to Jerusalem to complete this vow. There were sacrifices that needed to be made and that sort of thing. So Paul moves on fairly quickly from Ephesus, but he leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila, who have become two of his most trusted co-workers in ministry. And he says, if God wills, I'll be back. And I don't know if you have headings in your Bible, but if you look at the heading, the very next section, chapter 19, what does it say? Paul in Ephesus. Yeah, he's coming back. He's coming back quite soon. But he says, you know, this is in God's hands. I'm going to leave you in the good hands of Priscilla and Aquila, and I am going to move on. The apostle is not a control freak. He knows that it's God who's in control. And so he can move on, sail away from Ephesus, knowing that God is still at work there, and the text is going to highlight that for us, knowing that Priscilla and Aquila are, are capable of teaching and leading and building up the church, not knowing that another great preacher is there and about to have this encounter with them and be raised up as a, a teacher in the faith as well. In 1 Corinthians 13, or 16, rather, we learn that Priscilla and Aquila host the church in their very home and become kind of a mother and father to the Christians there, just as they also were in Rome. 
So Paul, he comes ashore in Caesarea following the red line. I'm sure he was ecstatic to get back after years now on this trip, not only because even in ruins, Caesarea is one of those beautiful places I've ever laid eyes on, but also because it meant he was back in Palestine. He's he's back home. He's close. And so he goes from there up, undoubtedly, to Jerusalem. It doesn't say the word, but it's clear when it says he went up and greeted the church. It's in Jerusalem. If there was a feast, he took part in it. If not, what he did was to offer up, the. if you read in uh, number 6 again, the final sacrifices that were related to this vow he had taken. And then he went back to Antioch. Full circle once again. Just like after the first missionary journey, undoubtedly he gave a report about what he had done and seen, what was going on in the world, what, what churches were growing, what churches were struggling. The first time the big news was, I have reached the Gentiles with the gospel in a major way, in a new way. The second time, the news is I've reached Europe with the gospel. Also exciting stuff. But what's easy to miss in verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, is that he has already begun in verse 23, the third missionary journey. That's right, you're going to need a new map of the third and fourth missionary journeys for next time. It is now the spring of A.D. 52. It's been almost 20 years since Jesus' death and resurrection, almost that long since Paul's conversion. And while Acts seems often like this is all compressed into a short period of time, it's not. Some of this stuff really takes time. In fact, it seems like he he goes back to Antioch, and then, boom, he's gone. But we know that a lot of other stuff happened there as well. Remember, in the second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit did not permit him to go into Asia, so he had to go around. This time, there is no such prohibition from the Spirit, and he's going to go right through Asia. He is going to stop at a whole bunch of these uh, churches that he had founded, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Pisidian, Antioch, and then he's going into Ephesus, and that is where his emphasis will be. Now, again, it almost looks like a run-on sentence, going from the second missionary journey to the third, which is, which is fitting because Paul is known for his long, run-on, feeling sentences. But again, a lot had happened, including the run in with Peter. Remember? I opposed him directly to his face openly because he was clearly in the wrong. There's a lot of exciting stuff that has happened. The reason we don't read about it here, I think, is because Luke shifts his focus away from Paul. He can kind of do his thing. We're going to zoom in back to Ephesus on something that's happening there. Because there is something exciting happening. There's ministry happening all over, whether Paul is there or not. And what's going on in Ephesus now doesn't require Paul. We read about it starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Now this man is from Alexandria, which is a big deal. This is the kind of thing you'd probably bring up so often it got annoying. You guys know I'm from Alexandria, right? And back in Alex, like when you know someone who lived in New York for a while and they're always like, you know, at three in the morning you can get a slice of pizza. But this would be even more annoying because Alexandria was, it was the second most important city in the whole Roman Empire. It was incredibly cosmopolitan. So it's, it's in Egypt, it's in North Africa, it's got Egyptians, it's got people from all over North Africa, it's got Greeks, there's lots of Jews living, there's people from everywhere. 
It was an exciting place, and it was very, it was a very academic place. It was an intellectual center. Undoubtedly, you've heard of the Library of Alexandria, which was burned down about a hundred years earlier by Caesar by accident during a war. But it continued to be an intellectual center, even without the full library. Everything had been moving online at that point, anyway. But this this whole point, uh, this whole this whole place was was kind of known for being a spawner of great thinkers and great rhetoricians and great orators and speakers and teachers. And that wasn't just pagan thought or Gentile thought, but also Jewish thought. It's in Alexandria that the Old Testament is uh, translated into Greek. The Septuagint, the Bible that the apostles and Jesus seem to prefer, at least in our New Testament. It's in Alexandria at about this time when Philo the Jew, this great uh, Jewish thinker and teacher and philosopher, was making a great name for himself. And not long after this, it will be a center of Christian thought. I'm sure you've heard of Clement of Alexandria, one of the church fathers. So Apollos is coming out of this background. And I think that's important because it could mean that he would be arrogant, puffed up, not open to correction or rebuke. Now, he comes in teaching. He's teaching in the synagogues in Ephesus. He's teaching boldly. He's teaching about Jesus, but he's different from Paul. Paul was kind of the scrappy rabbi, educated but unpolished. In fact, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he makes a huge deal about how unpolished he is. You have all these really smooth teachers and orators. I'm not like them. Apollos is like them. He comes in and he knows how to command a room and how to keep you hanging on his every word. Apollos probably wouldn't have had the problem that Paul has when he preaches too long and the poor kid falls out the window and dies. We'll we'll get there in a few weeks. Apollos is a scholar, smart, sophisticated, adept at reasoning and debate. He has some things in common with Paul. Like Paul, Apollos goes for the intellect, wants to engage your mind and in doing so, he, he reminds us that you don't have to check your brain at the door when you become a Christian. When, when doubts or the questions enter your head, you don't have to push them back out, but rather to explore them and to discuss them and to study them is the proper response. Apollos will engage the mind, and like Paul, he, he speaks boldly. He goes in not saying, Maybe we should look into this Jesus thing because I've learned a little bit about Jesus and it looks promising. No, he comes in saying Jesus is the answer, such as he understands him. He's bold and he's committed. He's all in. He's not, I don't know, my parents have a pool now and I've been reminded of of how I have this tendency, like there's the steps down into the pool to take like 45 minutes. I don't know what that says about me, but you know, very, very slowly to get into the water My son, on the other hand, is like, pool, jump, splash. That's how I used to be. This is how Apollos is. He he dives into the deep end here. He is on Team Jesus. In in 1990, Brett Butler, who was a center fielder for the San Francisco Giants, he left his team where he was very much loved and well-known as a free agent, and he wound up being a Los Angeles Dodger. And they were the rivals because they're in the same state, right? Right? For whatever reason, instead of being like, we together are against those people over there, those close teams are often, I can't think of anything analogous in Michigan, but trust me. So so there's the in-state, cross-state rivals of the Giants and the Dodgers, and the first time Butler came back 
to play in the Giants' uh, candle, candlestick. I'm not a sports guy. The candlestick. He, he came back to play against his old team. He walked out and he was met with this wall of cheers and boos from the home court kind of crowd. They, they, they were excited on one side or the other to see him, but they were split. Some of them were still excited because they remembered him as kind of their star outfielder, and, and some of them were just angry because he seemed like a traitor, a turncoat. And so what he did was walk up to Tommy Lasorda, who was uh, the manager of the, the Dodgers, his new team, and give him a big hug. And all of the cheers turned to booze. And he said, that was a turning point in my career. I needed to turn the page. I was a Dodger now. I wasn't a giant anymore. And many people, I think, in their life haven't done this. They haven't turned the page. They haven't said to the world, to their, to their old friends, to their family, to the people closest to them, I follow Jesus. I'm not, I'm not one foot in and maybe one toe in the next. I'm, I'm all in with Jesus. And, and that's who I am. And if that's not something you can accept, then it, it, you can't accept me. Apollos was bold. He was all in in the way he proclaimed the Lord. But he wasn't entirely accurate. He had learned well the Greek Old Testament. He was using it now to preach powerfully in the synagogue that Jesus is the Messiah probably, or at least that the Messiah was coming based on what John the Baptist had taught. It seems to me that he knew about Jesus' life, probably about his miracles, probably about his teaching to some degree, and that's what he was proclaiming. But that he only knew about the baptism of John suggests that Apollos' teaching was just that. It was tied to the ethical principles of Christ. It was tied to what Jesus demanded of us or commanded. It was tied to law and not gospel, rather than being rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ, at which point he commanded a new baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Priscilla and Aquila, attending the synagogue, hear him speaking this way. I want you to notice what they don't do. They don't get all offended and huffy and angry and start a blog dedicated to exposing the, the false teachings and, and half-truths of Apollos. They don't try to embarrass him publicly in the synagogue or warn people that his teaching is deficient or dangerous. Instead, they invite him into their home. Come on over for dinner sometime. And they talk to him privately about this. And I keep saying they because the text keeps saying they. We're talking about aorist plural verbs, past tense plural. They heard him, they took him aside, and they expounded to him more adequately who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that he had died and risen again, and that by faith in him, one could be saved. In fact, woodenly translated, they laid it all out for him. That's what that word means, to lay it out. They taught him more perfectly, more completely, or again, more adequately. The baptism that Apollos had been teaching was based on turning your own life around. It's a popular message even today, even amongst churches that call themselves Christian. Rather than being rooted in faith in the finished work of Jesus, which gives us a new heart and makes us a new creation. Repentance, yes, is important. That's the turning around. But we are saved by faith. And that's something important that Apollos was missing. It was an incomplete message because it was a message about doing, not about receiving. And this is common today as well. 
Again, even in the church, and it takes a couple forms. There's the really hardcore fundamentalist Christianity is a list of rules. You can't do this, you can't do that. You, you, you must do this, you must, you, must, you must be in church every time the doors are open. You can't go to a movie. You can, and then there's all the different versions of it. But the list of rules approach is an inadequate approach to Christianity because it's about freedom in Christ. The other side of it, it feels more warm and fuzzy. It says what you must do is live to your potential, grab your dreams and run with them, jump on a unicorn and fly through a rainbow or whatever. It, it feels good. It doesn't feel as negative, but still it's about do, 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 do. Not about what Jesus said, which is it is finished. Done. Put your faith in Jesus who has accomplished your salvation. This baptism ties us to Christ in his death, going under the water, going into the tomb with him, and in his resurrection, coming out of the water, out of the tomb with Christ, resurrected a new creation. And when he is told this, Apollos received the word of God humbly. And this is why I want to be like Apollos. Because he's, he's a promising, up-and-coming new teacher. And, and he seems to have something of a following, but he still needs to grow. And he knows this. And even though he has a far more impressive background and pedigree and education than these two blue-collar workers who make tents all day, he doesn't think that he can't learn from them. He, he is willing to listen and grow in his faith and understanding. Like we read in Romans 12, let no one think more highly of himself than he ought. That describes Apollos. He does not think more highly of himself than he ought. This is difficult, I think, many times for Christians, especially if we know the Bible well, or, or for young preachers. I look back at when I was just starting out in ministry after a decade of being filled up with knowledge and coming here full, but not full of knowledge as much as I was full of myself, and looking back at certain things and going, oh, Zach, dude, I want to shake you. This is something that we as believers, as we grow mature, find easier, which is counterintuitive. To be open to being taught and to grow and to learn. And many today need to, just, just like Apollos knew the requirements of God's law. He knew how to motivate people to turn from their wicked, wicked ways. That's what baptism was about in the world before Jesus came on the scene. It was just this ceremonial washing away of your old dirt, and now you're going to start fresh. He knew how to teach that and get people excited about it. And in that way, he was right, but it wasn't adequate. Because he knew a lot about this, but he didn't really know Jesus. At least not deeply. And there are many people today who've even come into church week after week, and they know a lot about the Bible, but they don't know Jesus. And it's important that when we see that, that we come alongside like Priscilla and Aquila and help people more adequately, more perfectly to see who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Not angrily, not judgingly, but gently, just as Priscilla and Aquila did. And this doesn't happen all at once, even when it does happen. That's important. It often happens slowly. I've emphasized many, many times through the book of Acts so far that this book should encourage us about rejection. Because Paul preaches the gospel, Peter preaches the gospel, and often what they're met with is either laughter, indifference, or outright persecution. 
So I say, okay, if you proclaim the gospel to somebody and you're met with one of those things, you're in good company. Be encouraged. But also note that even when there will ultimately be success, it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes it does. Sometimes somebody comes to a, a crisis point. They're like, I need something bigger than myself. Jesus is presented to them. They say, I need that. At the foot of the cross, they give up. It happens. They put their faith in Jesus and say, look, I've been trying and trying and trying to be good enough to turn over a new leaf. I'm all out of leaves. I'm, I'm like an empty tree, just dead, and I feel dead. And what I need is what Jesus offers, which is new life, because he died on a cross and rose again. And when he died on the cross, he, he bore my sins. And when he rose again, there is in that the promise of new life. For me, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, that is what you need. But many people, it happens slowly. I think of C.S. Lewis. We know that he came from being an atheist to being one of the more prominent Christian thinkers and teachers. You'd think it would happen all at once for someone like that, very decisive man. And we hear quotes like this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And you'd think that right on the heels of that would come, that's why I'm going to put my faith in Jesus and become a Christian and write miracles of Christianity and then we all live happily ever after. But it didn't happen that way. It happened slow. First, he turned to paganism. Actually, it was kind of more his area of expertise. And, and there he found no comfort and no hope and no, no truth Moved on to kind of this cagey, empty deism. There's some power, maybe, but he's not so connected to the world. Then to a soft theism. Well, I guess there is a God. And it took him a long, long, long time to get comfortable with the idea of an incarnation. And maybe he never really did, but he did accept it. The idea that God in the flesh came and dwelt amongst us and died and rose again. And through this long struggle, this long journey, he had friends like Owen Barfield and, and J.R.R. Tolkien who walked beside him and encouraged him and guided him patiently. They didn't say, come on, man, make a decision. They said, well, we'll walk with you. We'll be with you. And we're not going to, we're not going to judge you. We're not going to abandon you. We'll be here as you walk down this path. I think it's very fitting that in, in Romans 1, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. And that's Apollos' own story, right? He's, he's out there watering many of the seeds planted by Paul in his preaching of the gospel. He himself, there was some seeds that were planted by, I guess, followers of John the Baptist or, or some rudimentary Christians who didn't know fully the doctrine of the Christian church. Then he came to Ephesus, and there Priscilla and Aquila were watering but it was God who caused the growth. And it is always God who causes growth. If we start to think it's us, we are thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought. Now, it only makes sense that Priscilla and Aquila did baptize him then, although we're not told here that they did, but they did send him away with a letter to Corinth. He wanted to go to Achaia. He wanted to go to the capital of Achaia, Corinth, where Priscilla and Aquila and Paul were well known. And so a letter from them and the brothers uh, had a lot of weight to it. And there, with the gifts of teaching and debate and exhorting that were given by the Holy Spirit and with a complete understanding of the gospel that was given by Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos was of great help to the church in Corinth. And he is now remembered as one of the greatest teachers and preachers of the Christian church. 
Chapter 18, which we looked at last time and this time, altogether, it's like a breath of fresh air to me. A nice reminder that serving Jesus does not always mean that people will mock you and persecute you and laugh in your face. There's been plenty of that in both of Paul's missionary journeys thus far, but it isn't always the case. We see here some great strides forward for the Christian church. We see some huge victories for the gospel. Three new leaders have joined the apostles' team now in even just the last chapter. And the fruit of their labors will be immeasurable. We see it. Their names are littered through the epistles, telling us that their impact on the church did not cease. Rather, it grew and grew. We need to remember to take time to stop and Thank God for these victories, even if they're not huge. Little victories. Little victories are great gifts from God, especially in the midst of trials or struggles or suffering. To take time to express our gratitude. You don't need to take a Nazarite vow and let your hair grow out long. Richard, don't, don't do it. But it is a good idea to say, I am going to take an intentional period of time to thank God for all the gifts he's given me. I'm going to list them out. Remember that old song, count your blessings, count them one by one. Somehow the world is doing this more than the churches. I see this on on Twitter and things. I'm doing 90 days of of gratitude. I'm just saying things I'm thankful for day after day after day after day. And it has a great impact on people to recognize how blessed they are. Well, those of us who follow the one who blesses ought to be doing this as a lifestyle, not as a gimmick. And when we do, it frames our view of the troubles that we face. And it forms our worldview entirely. When we're met with opposition, suddenly now I've got so much to be thankful for that it doesn't feel overwhelming. You know, I've pointed out before that Paul's definition of a closed door is not like ours. In 1 Corinthians 16, shortly after he mentions that church in Priscilla and Achilla's house, He says he is going to stay in Ephesus. That's right. He decided not to leave quickly this time. He's he's staying for the long haul. He says, I'm going to stay until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. What is a wide door to effective work? It doesn't look like no obstacles, no adversaries. It doesn't even look like there's a wide door that's open, but there are many adversaries. No. There's a wide door open and many adversaries. It's almost like to Paul, the fact that there are a lot of people lining up on the other side to push back is proof that this is something that God would have him do. That that the enemy has taken notice and is rallying his troops. Even when a door, though, has been definitively closed. As earlier in the second missionary journey, when he wanted to go north into Bithynia or south into Asia, but was kept from it by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean it's closed forever. If a door is closed, it is not necessarily indefinitely closed. And so Paul undoubtedly continues to pray for Asia, especially for Ephesus. He continues to pray for the opportunity to minister there. And he continues to try the door here and there. I mean, even the T-Rex in Jurassic Park had the smarts to systematically check the electric fence for weaknesses. You're smarter than a T-Rex, aren't you? They're, They're walnut brains. We believe in a God who is more powerful than anything. And yet, if one door is closed one time, we so often give up entirely. Don't fall into that trap. You know, I think about on on a movie when the phones are dead, 
I miss when the phones could be dead. Remember that? You're like, oh, we can't, we can't reach the outside world. The phone line is dead. And what do you do? They hit that plunger like a hundred times. It's never worked. Doing that has never made the dial tone come back on. But it does make sense to wait a few minutes and check it again. And then wait a few minutes and check it again. Because eventually, the phones are going to come back on, maybe before the serial killer gets you. I think about the persistent widow in Luke 18, when the same guy is, is relating a story that Jesus taught so that we would always pray and never give up. That's the reason Luke gives, that Jesus tells that story. About this widow who's begging for justice from, from a, a magistrate who doesn't care about people and doesn't respect God, but she's so persistent that finally he says, fine, I'll give you justice. And then Jesus says, if, if this dirtbag would do that, think about what God, your righteous Father, will do for you if you continue in prayer. And what is the prayer that I think we see most clearly answered in Acts 18? I think it's the very prayer that Jesus commands in Matthew 9. When he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest. I'm sorry. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest fields. The harvest is plenty. There aren't enough workers for it. Therefore, you should be praying earnestly for more workers. Paul must have been doing this. He was happy to have these fellow laborers. He must have prayed for them. He could not adequately serve all these churches. He's starting churches all over. He can't be the pastor of all of them. He can't be the deacons and the elders of all of them. He wants and he's looking for and praying for more people to do the ministry with him. And look how he picks people up on the way. Luke, Timothy, Silas from Jerusalem, he's, and, then, and then Priscilla and Achilla. Now Apollos has joined the team, and we find him with Paul on more than one occasion. And today, too, the harvest is plentiful, and the workers are too few. It's easy to look at a church and go, wow, summertime, there are fewer people here even than usual. We probably have enough workers. What we need is more in the harvest, right? Yeah, we've got a pastor. We've got elders. We've got some who are able to teach and even to preach. We've got enough deacons. We've got Sunday school teachers. We're all set because we only have 105 members or something. This is enough. Listen, the harvest is out there. Remember how God said to Paul, I have many people in this city, talking about Corinth. I have many people in this city. He wasn't talking about people who had already come to faith, but those who were appointed to eternal life. You need to then go out into the harvest fields and harvest. We ought to be praying here for more harvest workers, whether from within our congregation or from without. When I first showed up at Burton Baptist Church, my, my pastor there, Dr. Ed Pikey, also very much a mentor to me through, through my uh, education, he sat me down and said, I don't want to freak you out, but you and your wife are an answer to prayer. Actually, she wasn't even my wife yet, my fiance. I said, whoa, you did freak me out a little bit. What do you mean? And what does this mean I have to do? He said, we've been praying for more workers, earnestly, consistently, continually, because there are very few young people here, and we needed somebody who could come and work with youth you show up, you're working on a ministry degree, you say you want to work with youth, you're an answer to prayer. Deal with it. But maybe I wouldn't have wound up there 
if he hadn't been praying. It's easy for me to look from my point of view and say, well, there's only one American Baptist Church left in Grand Rapids. I wanted to be ordained to the American Baptist Church. It's a no-brainer. But in God's sovereignty, his prayer was answered. Our prayer needs to go up for more workers for the harvest field because he has many in this city. The harvest today in Lansing is plentiful and the workers are too few. Not only here, but in every church. Let us be praying for more workers for every Christian church in our city. Meanwhile, we serve God and strive to serve God and pray to serve God more completely, more perfectly, more adequately. That we would day by day seek His glory first. Like Apollos, that we would be open to correction and leading and guiding by those who have been in the faith longer than us and are more mature in the faith. That we would be about lifting up His name, not ours. That there would be a time of great revival around this church, in this church, in this city, in this country. These are the things we ought to be earnestly praying for. Are you earnestly praying for these things? It's very easy to kind of fall into a funk. Well, you know, there's some closed doors here, closed doors there. Forget it. Try the doorknob. Try the doorknob. Try the doorknob. Try the doorknob. Check the electric fence. My friends, God is not a God of closing doors in our face. Our God is a God who directs us and leads us. The reason these doors were closed was to push him up into Europe where there was a great harvest. And it's still being yielded to this very day. Let's ask the question, where is God leading each of us? And where is God leading this church? So that we can go out into the harvest field and bring glory to his name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, this break from Paul's journeys to just zoom in on Ephesus and look at this man, Apollos, and, and this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who cared enough to take him aside and instruct him. And Lord, we know in all of that, you were greatly glorified. And Lord, our desire is that here in this place and amongst these people, you would be greatly glorified and that we would be the, the instruments of that. That we would bring honor and glory to your name. And Lord, we pray that we would not grow tired or weary that we would not try a doorknob once or twice and say, well, I guess that's that. But that, Lord, we would be tenacious in praying, in praying for more to come to faith, in praying for more workers in the harvest field, in praying for your name to be lifted up higher, and in praying for our desire to grow, to go out and boldly proclaim, I'm with Jesus. To, to do the equivalent of hugging the manager, hug Jesus in public and say, this is what I'm about. And trust that you will bring your own to faith. In your holy name we pray. Amen.